Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word, the Bible. We pray that as we look at 2 Corinthians again for the last time now, that you help us to understand what it means and to think about how it uh, does apply to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we started studying 2 Corinthians, I have to say it was a bit of a mystery to me as a letter. So it's quite a, quite a big letter, quite a long letter. I think still quite a difficult letter to, to, to unravel. Um, it, it was a letter that I sort of knew bits and pieces of. Um, in fact, uh, there were bits and pieces, verses, passages in 2 Corinthians that I absolutely loved. But, but the picture of, of 2 Corinthians as a whole was a real mystery to me. I didn't understand that the flow of the letter, I couldn't really even have told you what the point of the letter was. Well, we've now been looking at 2 Corinthians since the end of July. Um, 19 talks, 19 Bible studies on it. I wonder, though, if anybody knows what the big idea is of 2 Corinthians at the end of the day. Sometimes when you take so long on it, you can, you can pick out bits and pieces again, but you can lose the wood for the trees, can't you? You can, um, you can not know the big picture of what the letter is on about. So what I wanted to do was add in this one last talk. I'm sorry this is really, it's a lecture, it's not a sermon. Um, this is just an information session. We're going to work through 2 Corinthians and try to see the big picture of it. It's not going to be a song and dance, no illustrations or anything. In fact, everybody was asleep this morning. It was quite depressing. But, um, but I'm going to try to just work through 2 Corinthians and show you how the letter flows, put you in the picture of the background. And hopefully, if you've been coming for the last few months, we had lots of visitors this morning who are obviously very bored, but I think just about everybody here has been with us for the last few months. Hopefully, you'll start to put things into place and see how the letter works as a whole. So... Um, the thing about 2 Corinthians is it's a very personal letter. Perhaps the most, well, perhaps Philemon is very personal as well, but 2 Corinthians, certainly among the big letters, is very personal. It flows out of the, the situation that Paul was in. It flows out of particularly the relationship that he's had with the Corinthian church. So part of the key to understanding 2 Corinthians is to get ourselves in the situation, to understand the background and to do that, what we have to do is piece together bits of evidence from, from, uh, from, from parts of the Bible. Now, it was back in 50 AD that Paul first visited the city of Corinth. And we read about that in Acts chapter 18. He was there. He preached the gospel first to the Jewish people in the synagogue. Then when he got thrown out of the synagogue, he preached the gospel to, to Gentiles as well. He hung around for about 18 months, about a year and a half, and planted a church there of both Jewish and Gentile people all together on the basis only of the fact that they trusted in Jesus. After Paul left to go on to, to mission in another place, he wrote a letter back to the Corinthians. They wrote a reply to him, and in reply to their reply, Paul wrote the letter that we have as 1 Corinthians in our Bibles. By this time, it's around about 54 AD, and in 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with some problems that are in the church in Corinth, and he deals with some questions and issues that they raised in their reply to his letter, if you know what I mean. So that's in his reply to their reply. All right, well, 1 Corinthians 16 then, what Paul does is he outlines his plans with the Corinthians. And he says, I'm not planning on visiting you for quite a while. What I'll do is I'll visit you on the way down to Jerusalem for the special collection that I'm having, which we'll talk more about in a minute. That was Paul's plan. But after he finished writing 1 Corinthians, his plan changed there was some problem in Corinth, perhaps some major moral failure, and Paul rushed straight across to sort it out. Unfortunately, while Paul was there, everything went pear-shaped. Um, he, he tried to discipline this person, but he didn't get the support of the church as a whole. 
And uh, he left Corinth very worried. He's worried the church was morally compromised. It seems they weren't uh, even perhaps accepting the authority of his teaching anymore. Paul was so worried that he planned to make two more visits to Corinth. And you can see that in chapter 1 and verse 16 of 2 Corinthians. So let's kick off there. Chapter 1 and verse 16 of 2 Corinthians. Sorry, I don't have page numbers for you, but... uh, I'm sure we can all find it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 16. Okay, notice here his plan to, to visit twice. I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia. Okay, so he's planning two trips because he's had such a terrible experience with them uh, on the last visit. But again, he changes his mind. He decides he doesn't want to make another painful visit. He decides instead that he's better off sending his friend Titus with a strongly worded letter. So chapter 2 and verse 1. Chapter 2 and verse 1. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. Okay, didn't visit, instead he wrote. He wrote this letter, he sent it off with Titus, and then he waited to see what would happen. 54 becomes 55. Paul goes to Troas. Here's no news. Uh, he then moves to Macedonia. He's really stressed. But then finally Titus comes back and he comes back with news of what's happened in Corinth. The thing is, as the saying goes, Titus has some good news and some bad news. Uh, the good news we'll deal with first. The good news was that the Corinthians had sorted out the issue that had been there in Paul's previous visit. They dealt with the moral failure They disciplined the offender, and Paul talks about that in chapter 2. Also, the church reaffirmed their loyalty to Paul himself, reaffirmed that he was their apostle. Uh, Come with me to chapter 7 and verse 6. Chapter 7 and verse 6, and we'll see here how Paul describes the situation with Titus and uh, and the Corinthians' response to his strongly worded letter. Chapter 7 and verse 6. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I said that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry but because your sorrow led you to repentance. Okay, you can see there they still love Paul. They're eager for him to, uh, to, to even come and see them again. And they have repented in, in the light of his letter. So the news from Titus is basically good. Paul's letter has done the job. But Titus also raises three matters of concern. Uh, there's a problem with a collection of money that Paul is organising that, uh, that the Corinthians have pledged to give to. Uh, there are also some false teachers in Corinth, super apostles they were calling themselves, and thirdly, there were still some issues of immorality. And now, as Paul comes to write to Corinthians, it's 55 AD. He's ready to go and visit Corinth for the third time on his way down to Jerusalem. And so he's sending this letter as like a... Um, 
like a warning that he's coming or something like that. It's partly to say how glad he is at their response to his last letter, but it's also to prepare them for his third visit by giving them the opportunity to, to sort out the three issues that Titus has raised with him. Okay, that's, that's the background. Are you with me on the background? Titus has come from Corinth with news, good news and bad news. Paul is writing in response to Titus's news. It's very personal, very situational stuff, isn't it? All right, well, let's work back through the letter then and, and, and see what it says. Try and get the, the, the flow of the letter as a whole. Uh, chapter 1, to, to begin with, Paul talks a bit about the troubles that he's been having but he gives thanks to God for rescuing him. That's the first, uh, first ten verses. And then after that, Paul deals with an initial issue. There are some people in Corinth and they are saying that Paul, Paul's word can't be trusted. Now, perhaps it's the false teachers, we don't know who it is, but the evidence that they were giving was the way Paul's plans kept changing. Uh, he said he wouldn't visit, but then he did. Then he said he would visit, but he didn't. He sent a letter instead. Uh, some people were arguing on this basis that Paul is fickle and untrustworthy. And so from chapter 1, verse 12, to chapter 2, verse 11, Paul addresses this issue. He admits that his plans did change, but he says they weren't reckless plans and he was never dishonest with them at any point. He was making his plans carefully and he spoke the truth to them. He told them that the, that truthfully his intentions at, 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 every, at every point. He can trust, they can trust him. And then in the next section, in chapter 2, verse 12, right through to chapter 7, verse 4, Paul goes on to discuss his ministry. He talks about the shape of what he's doing and again he's got some kind of criticism in mind. Perhaps it's the super apostles again that are in mind, the false teachers in mind. And, and as he describes his ministry, he contrasts it with, uh, with perhaps the super apostles' ministry. Um, and, and again, the point is he's trying to get the Corinthians to see who he is and what he does and what his message is so that they'll trust him and stick with the original message about Jesus that he brought. Paul says that he's a minister of the glorious new covenant the new relationship with God that was promised in the Old Testament that's been made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the new relationship with God that's characterized by being reconciled to God, being friends with God, the, the new relationship which, as promised, is characterized by receiving God's Holy Spirit and being, being transformed to be God's person. Uh, Paul says that his ministry, his job, is to tell people the message about Jesus as clearly as he can do it. No tricks, no gimmicks, no games. Just tell the message as it is. And he says as he does that, it, it divides people. Some people love it. They think it's, it's life itself, but to other people it's like a stench in their nostrils. They hate it. And so for Paul, life is pretty tough. He gets basically bashed about from pillar to post. Uh, he suffers all kinds of persecutions. But he keeps on going, he says, because he knows that this life is not all there is. He knows that, as he says, when, when the tent of this body is taken away, that God has prepared a house for him, a new body. This life is not all there is. Through Jesus, there's a future life. And so Paul keeps on going, clearly explaining who Jesus is and calling on people to trust in him and him alone and be reconciled to God. If you want a summary of, of Paul's ministry, I mean, it's, it's a very rich section from chapter 2 to 7, but if I had to pick one passage to summarize it, I'd say chapter 5 and verse 18. Chapter 5 and verse 18, where Paul summarizes really what he's on about in his ministry. He says, chapter 5, verse 18, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's his ministry. Calling on people to trust in Christ, become friends with God. And he says to the Corinthians, you've just got to stick with me and stick with this message that I originally brought you five years ago. Don't fall away from it. Don't go off after anything else. Chapter 6, verse 11. Chapter 6, verse 11. He says, We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and open wide our hearts to you. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you're withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. He wants them to, to, to stick with him. He knows that they are, to some extent, because he's had that news from Titus, but really he's passionately concerned that they stay with him and with the message that he brought them. Well, chapter 7, as we've seen, is the, the little update on what's happening. Um, Paul's in Macedonia. Titus has come with the news that the Corinthians have received his letter, reaffirmed their loyalty, loyalty to him, and Paul is giving thanks to God. But, uh, but that's really the turning point because Titus has also raised these three issues, uh, these three matters of concern in Corinth. And so for the rest of the letter, what Paul does is he deals with these three issues. Chapters 8 to 9, there's the issue of this collection. Now, Paul has been organising a collection. It's a special collection which is, is taking money from some of the... Uh, the, the non-Jewish Christian churches, that the Gentile Christian churches in, in Macedonia and, and in Achaia, places like Corinth, he's taking money from the Gentile churches and he's taking it down to the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And the idea is it's a way of creating harmony, unity within the church and particularly getting the Jewish Christians to accept that the Gentiles are fair-income Christians. That's what the, uh, the collection is on about. And the Corinthians the year before had been really excited about it and they'd made this big generous pledge the problem is Titus has come back to Paul and he said, now Paul, yeah, things are all okay, but you need to realise they haven't been saving up for this big pledge. You're going to get there and it's going to be a really embarrassing moment uh, for you and for them. And so what Paul does in chapters 8 to 9 is he, he sends off the letter as a preparation for them saying, get your act together, start getting your money together, fulfil the pledge that you made last year and give generously to this collection. That's chapters 8 to 9. Uh, chapters 10 to 12, then, Paul deals with this issue of false teachers in the church, these super apostles, as they were called. Now, Paul taught that the only thing you need to be a Christian is to rely on Jesus. That's it. Just rely on him. That's why both Jews and Gentiles were welcome in, in, in the church that, that, that he planted. Uh, both welcome as long as they were relying on Jesus. But the super apostles were saying that it's more than just relying on Jesus. There's, there's a Jewish element to it as well. Particularly for a Gentile Christian, it's not enough to just rely on Jesus. You've got to, you've got to follow some Old Testament laws and be a bit Jewish and, and do some Jewish things, things required by God's Old Testament law. The super apostles were contradicting Paul's message about how faith in Jesus is all you need to be a Christian. And the thing is, the Corinthians were putting up with it. They were, they were listening. They were perhaps even impressed by it. Chapter 11 and verse 4, I think, sets out the problem pretty clearly. Chapter 11 and verse 4. 
But if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. You see, they're putting up with false teachers, but the false teachers are dangerous. They could lead the Corinthians away from Jesus. They could lead the Corinthians to be relying on their own obedience to God's law instead of on Jesus' death and resurrection. And as far as Paul is concerned, that is, that is deadly. They rely on their own obedience to God's law. That's, that's a ticket to hell. They must rely on Jesus alone. And so what Paul does in, in chapters 10 to 12 is he compares himself to the super apostles. He shows why the Corinthians should trust him and his message and not them and their message. He shows the Corinthians why they should stick with Jesus as, as, as he proclaimed Jesus and not go off on anything else. Then in, in the last part of the letter, Paul deals with uh, issues of immorality in the Corinthian church. He's worried that there might be issues of division and, and sexual immorality. And you can see that in chapter 12 and verse 20. Chapter 12 and verse 20. He says, I'm afraid that when I come, on his third visit, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarrelling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I'll be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. He's worried about this immorality, and so the letter is, is calling them to, to get their act together, to, um, to live in obedience to Jesus so that when he comes, he won't, have to, he won't have to discipline them. And in fact, Paul gives away that that's the whole reason for writing the letter. It's preparation for his third visit. It's, um, I think a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about how when my parents went away overseas for the first time and my friends came and had a so-called party in my house. It, it, it's like the parents who are away overseas and they write a letter or, or, or make a phone call or something like that to their wayward son and say, we're coming home in two days, get ready. Okay, clean the place up, fix all the broken things, kick out all your friends and, and, and have the place ready for when you come. That, that's what this letter is on about. It, it's Paul giving them the opportunity to, to get their house in order so that they're ready for his visit. Chapter 13 and verse 10, he says it. Chapter 13 and verse 10. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up not for tearing you down. Okay, nearly everyone's awake still tonight. That's very exciting. <laughs> okay. um, can you see the big picture of the letter then? Um, you've got uh, the section at the beginning on Paul's trustworthiness, then the section on describing his ministry, a little bit updating on what's happening with Titus, and then dealing with the three issues of uh, the collection, the super apostles, and... The, uh, the, the immorality issues. That's, that's the way the letter flows. And in the light of the background, it makes sense, doesn't it? This is Paul's response to the news he's had from Titus. Thanking God and thanking them for, for the good news, thanking God that the Corinthians are still on board, but also dealing with the problems that Titus has told him about to prepare them for his next visit. Okay. Well, that then brings us to the very last couple of verses. And those are the verses that we're looking at together this evening. Chapter 13 and verse 11 is what we're up to. And in chapter 13 and verse 11, Paul calls on the Corinthians to, to obey his letter. It's like a, a summary saying, so, so do what I've said. Okay? He says, live in obedience to Jesus, listen to what I've said, sort out the collection, 
get rid of the false apostles, um, sort out issues of immorality, agree with each other, live at peace. Do, do what I've said, he says, verse 11. Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Paul tells the Corinthians to greet each other warmly and he sends greetings from Macedonia. Verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. Now, I think the, uh, the holy kiss there is one example of, uh, of uh, a true biblical principle about greeting each other warmly that has a, a cultural application, the, uh, the holy kiss. Um, I heard recently of uh, an Australian minister, he's now the Bishop of Wollongong, he's a really knockabout sort of an Aussie guy, who went on a, a preaching visit to Macedonia, modern Macedonia, preached in a very large church with some 400 bearded men, all of whom kissed him at the end of the service. He said it was a, a, a very uh, unique and unusual and uncomfortable cross-cultural experience for him. But they're the ones being more strictly biblical at that point, aren't they? Then we are. I'm not inviting you to kiss me at the end of the service. Um, let's, let's make it a hearty handshake. The point, I think, is greet each other warmly within the cultural milieu, shall we say. And then Paul finishes with a prayer. Now, this is a really famous prayer. I bet you've prayed this prayer hundreds and hundreds of times. Christians often pray this prayer, and we think it's lovely. Um, but in the context here, this prayer has got a bit of a bite to it. It's quite pointed. It reminds me a bit of 1 Corinthians 13. You know that passage all about love? You know, love is patient, love is kind. People have it in weddings as if it's... But in the context in, in Corinth, that's actually a really, it's a really nasty passage for them. He's, really, he's having a severe dig at them in 1 Corinthians 13. Well, I reckon this is a bit of a dig as well, this uh, lovely little prayer at the end. R remember, you've got the false teachers. And they're telling the Corinthians, you've got to follow Old Testament laws. It's the law of God that's important. It's being Jewish that's important. It's not enough for a Gentile to rely on Jesus. Be a proper Christian. You've got to be like a Jew. In that light, Paul's prayer has got this real edge to it. Because he says, can you see, he prays that the grace of Jesus would be with them. That's what they need. It's not their own obedience to God's law. It's not Jewishness. What they need is grace. That is that is just God's mercy, his free, unmerited kindness towards them, expressed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. They don't need obedience, they need grace. Or can you see also Paul prays that the love of God will be with them. Not the law of God, not the justice of God, but the love of God will be with them. And then Paul prays that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would be with them. He prays they will have God's Holy Spirit. Now, for informed people who in the last 12 months have studied Ezekiel carefully together, which just happens by some strange accident to be asked, that should be ringing some bells for you. Is it ringing some bells? This is New Covenant language, isn't it? The fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that's Ezekiel 36. That's God's promise of the New Covenant, that my people will have my spirit. It's under the New Covenant that God promises people his spirit. Paul is praying that they'll have the spirit of the New Covenant, not the law of the Old. Chapter, uh, verse 14, let's have a look. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You see what the prayer is about? It, it, it's a last dig at the false teachers. 
It's a final shot at those Judaizers, those people who want them to be Jewish. These Corinthians need Jesus, not law. They need new covenant, not old covenant. They need Paul's gospel, not super apostles. They need the Jesus who has graciously brought in full forgiveness. It's not what they do that matters. It's what Jesus has done for them that matters. They need the Jesus who's done all that it takes to make them fully-fledged members of the people of God, whether they're Jewish or Gentile. These Corinthians need grace not law. And if you think about it, that's actually what ties this whole letter together. That's what this letter is on about. Every aspect of this letter is about defending the new covenant gospel, the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Let's think back through it. Right back at the beginning when Paul is defending the integrity of his word, why is he doing that? It's so the Corinthians will stick with him and with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Or or the next section when Paul's describing his ministry, when he's talking about what he does and why he does it, when he's calling on the Corinthians to stick with him again, he's describing his ministry as the ministry of proclaiming the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Or or then working through those issues that he deals with, uh, chapters 8 to 9, that collection... It's all about getting the Jews to understand that Gentiles are proper Christians, not because they follow the law, but through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Or the super apostles, the super apostles, chapters 10 to 12, they are preaching a different Jesus, offering a different spirit instead of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Or that final section on, on, on immorality. Paul's not preaching law to them. He's preaching the way they should respond to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. He's preaching about the way they should be empowered by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit to live in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every aspect of this letter is about defending that new covenant gospel, the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And so, and so I hope that's what we come away with. I hope that that is the point that we see of 2 Corinthians. I hope not only we've got a bit of a grasp of, of how it flows now, but, but what it is on about. I hope that we come away from this letter trusting what the Apostle Paul says about Jesus. I hope we come away from this letter committed to the gospel of God's grace in Jesus, convinced that we need nothing other than Jesus. I hope we come, conv- come away from this letter convinced that his death and resurrection alone is enough to make us God's people. Because because that was Paul's passionate desire for the Corinthians. That's his passionate desire for you and for me. That's what he lived for. That's what he suffered for. That's what he died for, that we would rely on Jesus alone. And of course, of course, in that, Paul is following in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus himself, isn't he? That's what Jesus lived for. That's what Jesus died for. That's what Jesus suffered for, that we might rely on him alone so that we can enter into God's new covenant through his grace and, and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit. Friends, friends, do you want to know the big picture of 2 Corinthians? Do you want to know the point? I think I've said it about a dozen times now. It's about the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The thing is, that's not a popular message. It's not a message that we naturally receive. Uh, proud people like us, we would much rather have a message that tells us how good we are. We, we, we would much rather have a list of the things that we can tick off that we can then say, I've done it, I've sorted out my relationship with God. We are at heart 
proud, legalistic people who, who want to be able to do something. And so this, this talk about the grace of Jesus and the love of God and the, the, the fellowship of the Spirit, it, it's telling us how helpless we are. It's telling us how we cannot save ourselves. And it can be a bit hard to stomach. It's why false teachers will keep on rising up. But friends, this is the only message that can save us. So let's not waste the uh, 19 talks and the 19 Bible studies that we've done on this. Let's stick with Paul and with his message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's hold fast to the Jesus who alone can save us. I reckon a a nice way for us to finish would be to uh, close by praying together the words of 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Um, Have you got 2 Corinthians 13, 14 there in in front of you? Why Why don't we pray that together for each other? Let's pray together. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.